uh, continuing our emotion and devotion uh, series. This is the last Sunday before we get into all the Advent goodness. And one of the things that we uh, are trying to do here is kind of enter into Jesus's world, if you will. We want to follow Jesus together, uh, not just on Sundays, but kind of in our, in our everyday rhythms of life. And one of the ways that we're doing that is by looking at, uh, looking at the Psalms and in the back of your bulletin, uh, the, or the, the second to last page, the last inside page, is a, a book of uh, a list of resources. Some of them are still out there on our resource table uh, right there. And I also wanted to give one to you. Uh, this might be the funnest one that we've gone through in terms of resources uh, for this series on the Psalms. And it's this band, and it didn't actually make the list, but it's this band called My Soul Among the Lions. You should write that down. It's uh, available anywhere CDs are sold and also for free on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Prime Music. But it's this folk band that has made it its mission to make a song about every single song. Like they started at one and they're on 30 now. And so Camille and baby Johnny and I have been blowing this up in our, in our house and uh, they're just really fun. And it just kind of gets up in, in your brain and into your heart. You wake up kind of muttering it and singing it. And it's just a, a sweet way to have uh, the, the word of God kind of saturate your, your, your hearts and minds. And um, so you might not be into folk music, so maybe it's not for you, uh, but I think it's pretty good. Most of the songs are pretty good, and uh, it's, been, it's been a blessing to me to, to have that, that resource. So uh, looking at our psalm now, if I were to take you, take you into a, a room, and before we went into the room, I said, okay, this is a honeymoon suite. And you walk into the room, and... It's concrete floor with no carpet, like one small cot off to the side, no windows, kind of like gray walls, and a metal folding chair. You'd be like, dang, this is, uh, this is not, that, not that great of a honeymoon suite. Uh, but if I were to say, hey, this is a prison cell we're about to go in, you'd be like, wow, it's pretty clean. You get it all to yourself. Like there's, there's not like bugs and you, you can stand up and there's light and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, it would make a huge difference based on whatever your expectation is, how you experience that room. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, expectations are everything. And I, and I say this because expectations, I think, have a huge impact in our emotional life. Maybe even more so than the actual events of our life. That what we expect out of life tends to affect how we emote or how we feel about life. And so oftentimes, we as Christians, we struggle with joy, struggle to have joy and peace because we're kind of like uh, the person who was told, hey, this is a honeymoon suite, and then we go into life and we're like, what the heck? There's only a cot. It's not even a double-sized cot. What are we doing here? Because as Christians, sometimes we go into the world with expectations that aren't actually in line with God's reality. And, and so I wonder how much of our negative emotions are way more intense than they, than they would be if we just let the circumstances kind of define our emotions, or not define, but cause us to feel. What I'm saying is, I wonder to what degree our depression comes from the fact that we're depressed, or we're anxious that we're anxious. If, you know, if, if we're on a scale of 1 to 100, maybe the event happens, and if we were able to just quantitatively say, this event should make me... 37 degrees anxious. But we get anxious and we're like, oh, why am I anxious? I shouldn't be anxious. And so then it like bumps up to 75 or something like that. And in, in our day and age where it's so easy to compare our lives to the perfect lives on the internet, uh, the, you know, we, we all project our best 
best life now on the internet. It can be easy to feel sad because we're sad, because everybody else is happy. Why do I feel sad? Maybe life is legitimately sad. Something is in our life that is sad. Uh, but because our expectations is that we should be healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time, or we should be able to pursue our happiness all the time, we get extra sad. And so this psalm, Psalm 126, I want us to give it to get to adjust our expectations to it. I, want, I think it gives us a beautiful picture or a beautiful map of the emotional life of a Christian. It's complex, it's nuanced, uh, but it, it, it's also true. And I think when we let God define what our emotional experience should be as his followers, uh, I think we'll, we'll see a huge decrease in our emotion points, if you will, on that made-up scale we just talked about. If we can just feel what is there without the, the false expectations kind of ratcheting up all these negative emotions. So the first point, sadness and joy are both part of following Jesus together. We talked about how we want to kind of gather around this phrase together as a church in this season of revitalization. We're following Jesus together. And this psalm shows us that to follow Jesus together with other people shows that sadness and joy are both to be expectations. And it might seem obvious or maybe this is elementary to you, but I think it's, it's pretty important to spend a couple minutes on this. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 126. This is on page 967, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So we, we start off with the joy part, which is kind of nice. This is an incredible elation, talking about being like men who achieved all their dreams or had their dreams come true, and their mouths were filled with laughter. And the tricky thing about the Psalms is a lot of them do line up with historical events very clearly, and then some of them are kind of less clear. A lot of scholars think this is uh, talking about when the Jews, the Israelites, returned from captivity in Babylon, but we honestly don't really know. It's not super clear. And the point is, is not to tie this to a historical event, because God did stuff like this all the time. He, he restored the fortunes of Israel all the time. He brought them back into their, their home out of, out of captivity. It could be the leaving Egypt. We, we have all these different uh, instances of God entering into brokenness, entering into the sadness, and, and restoring it, bringing, bringing us back. Verse 4 and 6 then say, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So it starts off with remembering just objectively true, beautiful things that God did, where he brought redemption, brought people back into their homeland. It's hard for us to imagine that because not many of us have been taken into captivity uh, recently. But if you imagine taking like from your land where you got your, that you handed down, handed down from generation to generation, the place that kind of defined who you were, the place where you worshiped God, like your culture, all these things being taken away, and then you get it back. Incredible, joyful thing. And then looking at this thing that God objectively did in the past, and then verses 4 through 6 is the present. So you, you've restored our fortunes in the past. 
now restore her fortunes again. And then it starts talking about tears, sowing in tears, going out, weeping, carrying seed to sow. What is this showing us about what it means to be a human, what, about, what it means to follow Jesus together? If we can see in our past or the past of God's people objective displays of God's deliverance, but then in the present be experiencing deep sorrow and longing and pain. It shows us that no matter how much God does for you, it won't get rid of sorrow, this side of redemption. No matter how much God does for you, it won't completely eradicate sorrow. This is adjusting our expectations as Christians, is that there is not a sorrow-free way to live. Uh, this is not an expectation that we have as people who follow Jesus. It stands in stark, stark opposition to any health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that sometimes is preached explicitly. Because we see to follow Jesus is that there's, to some degree, probably an equal amount of sadness and joy. And we see at the end that the, it ends with joy. We start with tears, we sow tears, we reap with songs of joy. We, we are weeping as we carry seed, but we return with joy with the harvest. Joy has the last word. And we see this in Jesus. The, the reason why I think we can say this, that, even, that, that followers of Jesus will not be without sorrow or sadness, this side of redemption, of full redemption, is that Jesus himself shows this balance. Jesus himself lived life perfectly. He was the fullness of humanity. He, he was everything that humans are meant to be. And we see the joy part of Jesus' life. What was Jesus' first miracle? Making a party keep going. He turned water into wine. This is at the end of the party or close to the end when people were already having a really good time and they ran out of wine. And he doesn't say, stop drinking wine, that's bad. He says, like, here's some better wine. <laughs> he, he's, he's proclaiming the message of his kingdom, of his good news, saying, like, I come bringing festivals of joy. The first miracle is, is a huge deal. He was called uh, a glutton and a drunkard because he was always going to parties, always feasting with people, always hanging out with really sketchy people that probably knew how to party better than, than we do as Baptists. He was all about having a good time and enjoying people to the point where he had a bad reputation with his opposition. So we see there's a place for celebration, there's a place for joy in the life of Jesus. But then... One of, the, one of the names that he goes by in scripture is a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you see the both and of sorrow, sadness, and joy in the life of Jesus? That the, the Son of God came and lived human life to the full and offers us that as well, but he was known as a man of sorrows. What would this do for our experience of life is when we, we experience joy, we commune with Christ because he's good and he came to bring the new wine of life with God forever. 
we experience sadness. We commune with, with God because we can identify with our Savior, who is a man of sorrows, who is a man of sorrows. The next thing we see, this is a little less obvious in the text, but I believe it's there, is sadness and joy are more intense for followers of Jesus. This is kind of a, if you will, maybe like a, a qualitative difference. So the first point was quantitative. We're going to have both. We're going to have quantities, amounts of both sorrow, sadness, and joy as we follow Jesus together. And I, and I believe what we see in this passage is that both of those things are more extreme, more intense, more vivid. Like we feel them more strongly. The quality of them is more pure, if you will. We're looking at our passage we have these three verses juxtaposed to the second three where this incredible joy, our mouths were filled, filled with laughter and all the nations saw God had, that God had done great things for them. But then in the present, they're, they're weeping. In the present, they're sowing in tears. This is one of the ways I believe our sorrow is more intense as followers of Jesus because We've got a taste of the living water. We've got a taste of the good life with God, and then we live in the not yet. We already have some of it, but then we live in the not yet. We know what could be. And so in, in the psalm, the, the people, they, they know about God's goodness. They know that deliverance and redemption is out there, and, but they have not yet received it in their present situation. Knowing that it's available sometimes can make the sorrow harder because what what would life look like if if God wasn't there or we didn't look to him for redemption well then it's you know just buck up just you know chin up because life is hard and everything is difficult and just grind it out but we know that's not true because of the joy of Jesus when we become Christians we begin to follow Jesus in all aspects of our life we see life come, becomes both better and harder we, be, we become happier for sure, but also sadder. I don't know if that's a word. Sadder, maybe. More sad. And our emotions become deeper. And I just want to stop here and just do kind of like a feeling check. Because I, one of the things we do here a lot that I've done since I became a pastor here is, be, is share highs and lows in any kind of smaller gathering. You know, tell me, tell, let us... Let us Rejoice and mourn together, and, and small, simple things. What's something we can rejoice with? What's something we can mourn with? And you'd be surprised how much pushback I get from Christians who's saying, like, well, I don't have any lows. And sometimes you don't. That's fine. Like, I'm not saying it's bad to not have a low. But it, it seemed like there was a resistance to acknowledge, like, sad things in our life and to share them with others and let others in on that hard stuff. So I just want to be curious about what, what are our expectations? If it, how, how does it feel to hear that, that to some degree Jesus came to bring life to the full and to some degree Jesus came to tell us to take up our cross and follow him and die, die to ourselves? Where are your expectations at? How do they, how do they compare to this psalm? And I think theologically, I think this is theologically speaking, we can see why this would be the case. Why, once we become Christians, our joy and our sadness uh, become more intense. Ezekiel 36 has this beautiful, beautiful verse, 36 to 26, talking about um, 
talking about the Israelites being made new. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what happens when we're, we become a new creation in Jesus, is that we get a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a, not a rock-hard, cold heart. And in a word, we get a heart that feels, that, that has the capacity to feel, that's, that's more tender and sensitive. Because how hard is it to hurt a stone? To what degree can a stone feel joy and sadness? Not very much. The hearts of stones that, that, that we have apart from Christ are just full of all these defense mechanisms. Maybe you're just like an expert detacher where something sad comes along and you're just like, well, I don't care about that. That's no big deal. Have you ever talked to someone who's like in the face of some staggering tragedy and they're just like, nah, it's no big deal. <laughs> it's like, well, there's got to be some, to, to, to some degree, we have to feel the emotions so we can have these hard hearts that just don't feel the, all these defense mechanisms telling, well, it's other people's fault, it's not my fault, or instead of like feeling sadness, we just get angry. All these different defense mechanisms to avoid feeling the depth of sorrow that our life might have. And same with, same with joy. You ever met someone scared to be happy? Just like, this is the Eeyore persona, who just like, no matter what good thing happens, they find the opposite of a silver lining. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, a black lining, suit lining, I don't know. You're like, oh, wow, that's really great that you were able to do that. Well, it wasn't good enough, and I should have done more. So we see that uh, we have these defense mechanisms that we, apart from Jesus, kind of insulate our heart from actually feeling what, what there is to feel. And then as we experience grace and get this new heart, we're actually to be sensitive and compassionate towards the suffering of others and our own suffering we're actually able to let ourselves be happy and enjoy what life has for us because God is good and he loves us but we've got to ask the question why was Jesus sad like why did Jesus weep why was he known as a man of sorrow Jesus was the most un-Ned Flanders like person that ever walked the earth probably and it's because he had this compassionate heart that loved Perfectly, He wanted more for the lost brokenness that he saw around him. Before Christ, we can have the, all the suck it up, life is hard. <coughs> After Christ, you know there's healing. And so when you see people in their brokenness, you don't just hide yourself from that pain by telling them to buck up. You say, hey, there's healing available, and I'm so sorry you're not experiencing it. Before Christ, we, we feel guilt all over from stuff that we do. Failing to be who we think we are. But, but after Christ, we see that our sin is ultimately, A, forgiven, and B, a fundamental mistrust of God our Father. Do you see the difference where before Christ, we, we know that there's something wrong with us. We know that we fall short, but it's typically some standard that we've picked. And so we're like, I'm better than that. I know I'm better than that. I should do better. But after Christ, we see a different type of sorrow where we see, like, ultimately what I'm doing is mistrusting my loving Father. Ultimately what I'm doing is looking at Jesus and saying, no, th no thank you. That's a different level of sadness. And with our soft new hearts that we have in Jesus, 
and just being a part of the church, there's a call to a, a relational and emotional intimacy with our, with our brothers and sisters that is both incredibly beautiful and incredibly painful. This is like the heights of joy and so- sadness that we can have in the body of Christ. There's incredible joy where complete strangers, people you would never ever spend time with probably, can be a brother, can be a sister, can be someone you depend on who serves you and you serve. It can be an incredible, beautiful thing to see miracles happen in their lives as their lives are redeemed and turned back from darkness. And you walk with someone together as we follow Jesus and you see certain patterns start to change. But then it's obviously incredibly painful because as we see our brokenness, that brings up all kinds of scary feelings. As we are broken and we try to love each other, we inevitably fall short and hurt each other. We say dumb things or we say good things that are taken in dumb ways. There's so many things that can cause pain in our relationships. But that's not an accident. That's not like separate to what God calls us to do. It's actually part of the full joy and honestly sadness that we, we, we experience in life to further identify with Jesus. So sadness and joy are both included. They're probably equal amounts or something close to it. And then sadness and joy are also more intense as we follow Jesus together. The third point is sadness produces joy for followers of Jesus. When we follow Jesus together, we see that our sadness is not only just redeemed, like it it doesn't just stop, but it actually is the means by which joy comes. That sadness produces joy for followers of Jesus. And this is just amazing. Because there is just a a first kind of objective truth. You know, Psalm Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So there is that element that we can flip to the end of the Bible and see the redemption of all things, that God will make all things new and wipe away every tear. Yes and amen, Lord Jesus, haste the day. But a further and maybe even more glorious truth is that the beauty of following Jesus, the power of the gospel, is that it's not just that our sadness ends, but it actually achieves or produces joy. Let's look at this. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. This is page 1798, if you're following along in the Pew Bible or tap there on your app. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Do you see that? Our psalm uses this language of sowing tears. We go out to plant seeds of our tears. We have carrying seeds for the sowing, which which is our weeping. And this is a psalm that's kind of a uh, a precursor to this, this redemption that we have in Christ, which is that we sow our tears like seeds and, and they in turn pr- bring about a harvest of joy. And we see this in the New Testament, the words of Paul. Depending on the degree of suffering you're experiencing right now, it can be a little offensive for Paul to say, your light and momentary affliction. Like he's calling anything that we're experiencing light and momentary, which is Depending on how much pain you're in, that can be unpleasant to hear. But he can say that about every single suffering that we might ever experience. Why? 
because that suffering is going to produce an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's going to achieve, make it happen, bring it about like an like a acorn going into the ground and producing a huge tree of joy. But how can we know that this is true? What is this hope of our sadness coming to produce joy based in? The answer is Jesus, as it is most of the time in church. The answer is always Jesus, some way, shape, or form. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We see that Jesus endured the cross, seeing that the cross itself, the, this pinnacle of human history, where the, the Son of God, Son of Man, is nailed to a tree, produces joy. It wasn't just that he got through it and there was joy on the other end. It was that in going through it, that was where joy came from. Redemption doesn't come just in spite of Jesus' sadness, just in spite of the cross, but through the cross. As we follow Jesus together, this is true of us as well. This is the pattern of following Jesus together. As we see our sadnesses, we see our tears like things to invest, seeds to plant. Where and how we plant them is going to determine the degree to that uh, the degree of joy that we see on the other side. The cry of my heart is that we would hear this as good news, that our uh, expectations would adjust until we would see our tears as not something to waste or to get through or to distract ourselves until we feel better, but instead an, an invitation to sow them in the gospel, in, in our re relationship with Jesus. So in light of these new expectations, how do we pray? Well, we start with the way the psalm does. We we think of something objectively true about who God is and what he does. That's why being immersed in the word is so important. We know that God is one who brings the captives back and fills our mouths with laughter and our tongues with joy. And then we cry out for it together. This is, such a, this is something that has so, been so interesting to me going through the Psalms is that some emotions seem to really call us into community really call us to engage in, in the life of the body. And then some of them are like, maybe don't share that and, and, get, and get with God first uh, before you pass that on. But we see with our joy and sadness is that everything, everything is in the third, it, it, it starts in the, um, in the plural, restore our fortunes. So we, as we cry out in our sadness, this is why the Bible calls us to, to mourn with those who mourn, so that we can share our sadnesses with others. Not as like a, rant or event, but just to mourn with each other, let others into that sadness, and then turn together to cry out for it. And the imagery here is beautiful. In verse 4, where it says, uh, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Paints this incredible picture of a desert. The Negev was a desert. And there were all these wadis in it, which are just basically like dry riverbeds or creeks. And 
occasionally there would be a big rainstorm in the mountains uh, above this desert. And then because the ground was so dry and it wouldn't absorb anything, there would just be flash floods. These waters would just, like a wall of, of water would come and fill these dry riverbeds with water. And inevitably the desert would respond. It'd be a flash flood and then the desert would respond with new life, with all these plants bursting forth, all these seeds that were dormant lying in the ground without water all of a sudden blossom into new life. This is what we're, we're calling for God to do with our, with our tears. It's just so beautiful that our tears are water, and, and water can bring, bring life. And so as Hebrews 12 says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, faith the one who redeems our sadness and suffering through it. As we consider expectations, our emotional expectations on life, I think what we see is that suffering, a lot of times, if we were to look at what we're really feeling and our suffering, is really God removing false Jesuses. We fix our eyes on things other than Jesus to perfect us. And in our suffering, that's God in his mercy refining us and taking away these things. Maybe it's Maybe it's work or marriage or the, the sadness of growing older and not being able to do what you used to do, which is just an objective sadness. What might God have for us as we can do less and less, either because we have uh, kids or because we're sick or because work is crazy? What might God be doing to us to have to accept our limits? And then consider where we are as a church family in this season of revitalization. We've been through a lot together. There's been lots of hard things that we've gone through, and all of us are kind of at the table working and, and playing our part. What, what might the, the sadness of this season as we've experienced pain from, from this revitalization work or as we, as we wait to see what God will do here amongst us? There's a... Uh, a pastor that has been a great counselor to me, and he revitalized a church in Colorado. It was a church of 30 people when he arrived there. And they did very simple things to try to follow Jesus together, similar to what we're doing, and uh, it's revitalized. And of course, like the, the size, like the numbers, is not the point, I'm not gonna say any numbers, but very fun, exciting things are happening there. And it's really fun to, to listen to him because they didn't do anything super fancy. You know, they didn't like hire like Chris Tomlin and like do a crazy show or whatever. They just tried to follow Jesus together. And so we can look at, look at that just like the, the psalm. We can look at like, God, you revitalize this church. You are a God who brings new life to things that were dead. You take a valley of dry bones and put in hearts of flesh into them. So we can say, we can claim this is true. This is who God is. This is what he does. And we can even bring who God is and what he does into our own life. We've experienced first fruit of this revitalization. As we baptize Ashley, we see relationships growing, and we see God answering our prayers and bringing more people to join our family and play a role. But it's still, it's still sad. It's still, it's still hard. There's still those questions of, like, what is it that we're doing here? And so together we can lock arms. We can hold hands and pray, restore us, O Lord. And we go to work, we, and we do the work of, of sowing seeds, of being faithful to the, the work that God has given us. 
the, the sadness that we feel is not uh, something to avoid, but our, our resources to invest in the gospel are a, a gift God inviting us to identify with our King and Savior, the man of sorrows. As we seek to follow Jesus together, I believe Scripture tells us that we will find him. He will, as we seek him first, we'll add all things. And so we sow, and one of the ways that he will do that is as we sow our tears. It's actually a means to the joy that we'll experience as a church family as we seek to be faithful and do the work that God has given us as a church family. Pray with me. Father, would you teach us to weep like Jesus wept so that we can know joy like Jesus experienced? Father, I pray uh, in your mercy, by the power of your spirit, you would reveal to us where we have expectations on life that just aren't in line with your truth, that uh, expectations that don't even apply to Jesus, our rejoicing King and Savior who was also a man of sorrows. And Father, as we submit our hearts to your word and to what you say is the experience of a Jesus follower, I pray that that we would come to see our tears as an invitation to, uh, to sow them. Sow them in your work, sow them in, uh, in trust, so that you might bring us into a place of joy. Father, I pray that you would um, just give us curiosity about uh, our, our past experience, our past uh, level of emotional uh, ups and downs, and how you might be calling us to experience life more fully uh, according to the way of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would um, uh, just give us patience as we, as we see emotional work done in our souls or see emotional work that needs to be done in our hearts as we follow Jesus. Give us grace and patience with ourselves, knowing that you will do it as we create space and wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.